Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. How you doing? This is late night Luke with the super deep voice. Um, that's my wife making fun of me in the back. Okay, uh, before we hear from Sarah Bessie, let me tell you about 1128 Ministries. Um, this is a great organization for those of you who are interested in the spiritual lives of ministers. Maybe you're looking for a safe place to seek God, a way to prevent burnout, or maybe hope for those who care for others. This is a great organization that provides services like individual and group spiritual direction, sabbatical journeys, mentoring for young ministers, and staff spiritual formation. Uh, you're going to hear from... The executive director of 1128 Ministries, Risa Higgins, in uh, just a few weeks, and you can hear more about them then. But I want to encourage you to uh, take a look, 1128 Ministries, uh, they're a great group. And if you're interested in the spiritual lives of ministers or preventing burnout, talk to them. So uh, that's our sponsor for the month. And let me remind you that we have got another mailbag podcast coming up in just uh, probably about two weeks. We're going to air it, so you get another week or so to send your questions in. Uh, we've got a bunch of good ones in already, and if you want to participate, we probably can still sneak you in. So send me a voice memo, Luke at LukeNorsworthy.com, if you want to hear your voice, or if you just want your question read, which is a great option too. You can send a message through our Facebook page or through that same email, Luke at Luke Norsworthy. That's it. Here we go with our friend from. Oh, Canada. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we have, uh, it might be our favorite Canadian in the world, Sarah Bessie. How are you, Sarah? Sarah? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good, thanks. And that's high praise right now. That's That sounds good. There's a lot of good Canadians out there. We won't talk about Justin Bieber. So. But say, so, yeah, the Biebs is right up there. Who Who are the top three best Canadians? Top three West Canadians. Well, right about now, I think Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, our new uh, yeah. our new Prime Minister, might be at the top of the list. He just was sworn in yesterday. Uh, Gen X, uh, Liberal Party, just had a total gender parity cabinet elected. So 15 women, 15 men, and all wow. in positions of power, diversity. Um, yeah, we were all really excited yesterday. I don't really know anything about him, but I do know he is one good-looking man. That's, that's what I do know. We are happy to be sending Justin Trudeau as our representative. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who's got better hair, him or Trump. It's really a big uh, toss-up. on. The, okay, so who are the other two then? That's one. Other two. Um, well, Wayne, let me think first. Wayne Gretzky? Don't you have to say Wayne something? Wayne Gretzky. Yeah, I would have to say Wayne Gretzky is definitely, but he's he's been gone from Canada for a really long time now. So. Uh, Alanis Morissette? Yeah, Alanis Morissette. She, she, I, I will talk about Celine Dion, maybe. A lot of Mike, Mike Myers. You know, we claim Mike, Mike Myers and Lauren Michaels. You oh, know, so Lauren Michaels, that's right. He's from Toronto, Canadian, isn't he? Martin Short and lots of other other good ones there. But, but you do know that my wife's favorite Canadian and my favorite and my wife's favorite guest that I've ever had is you. You are, oh. when, when I talk about the podcast, she said, you, you had Sarah Bessie on, and that's like the biggest name to her. It's not... <laughs> It's not anyone else. It's Sarah Bessie. It's not, you know, oh. pe- whatever. It's you. Because your blog, and I think we talked about this last time, but your blog post about, what was it, like the ache or something? Wanting, you had a blog mm-hmm. post, I'm sure it went extremely viral, 
Uh, she's so that's like that's that's her thing. You spoke to her soul, and oh, so she loves you. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad to hear that. That was that was a, a really fun um, experience with that post because it was one of those ones that I wrote really quickly on a morning, um, just more kind of articulating some of the things that I was feeling myself. And sometimes it happens as a writer where something you slave over just plans like a love balloon and the things that you just, you know, kind of release in without a lot of expectations just seem to somehow hit a nerve with people. And that was one of them for sure. I was shocked at how many people um, connected with it. Yeah. One of the things I found just doing podcasts, which is a different medium, of course, but the podcasts I think are going to do really, really, really well. They don't always do as well in terms of listens and you know viral stuff, but the ones that I don't expect for whatever reason to have as much traction, those seem to have more. And it's just it's like the creator's rule. I don't even know what it is. It's like the yeah. law. <laughs> yeah, you just kind of have to let go of those results. But uh, the ache was talking about your desire to always want to have more kids, and since then the ache won out, and you had a fourth. We did. We did. We had a fourth. I, I mean, we hadn't really planned on it. Our um, first three, we had three babies and four years. Um, just kind of like this little pack of, of babies <laughs> and they moved through our lives like a pack. And then all of a sudden, you know, they were, you know, now they're nine and seven and nearly five. Oh, wow. And uh, then all of a sudden we found ourselves uh, expecting a new baby. And I had actually written that post um, probably about eight months before I found out when I was pregnant wow. uh, again. And it was kind of just marking the passing of time and a way of saying, you know what, I don't, we're not having any more babies, but this was a good time in my life and now it's, it's over and I'm out of the baby stage. I'm out of the toddler stage. I'm in the big kid stage of my life and that's a good stage, but there's still some residual sadness or achiness about being done with that stage. And then all of a sudden I'm squarely back in it, (laughs) but the cribs and the diapers and the breastfeeding and all the things. So it's been, it's been really fun. I get that. And we are out of that. We're not having any more kids. It's done. So I don't want my, my wife to hear this and you to be a bad example and say, no, we can't have a fourth. No, we're not having a fourth. But like you, you progress and have different stages, and it's hard to give up that stuff. I recently switched from the church plant that I've been a part of for the last seven years, and now I work uh, at an established church, so I have an office, and I have to like go to work every day. And one of the mm-hmm. toughest things for me is I don't have my kids around all the time. And mm-hmm. so I used to work from home, and so my kids would uh, – we were talking about Barbara Brown Taylor before, like one time I was talking to her and my then two-year-old was banging on my door while I was talking to Barbara Brown Taylor and she was going, daddy, wipe my hiney. And so <laughs> at the time I wasn't very appreciative, but now like I, I miss that phase and it's tough. I know. It is tough. You know, it's, it's a tough thing to kind of uh, manage and look at, you know, I think that that's one of the things, I think that was where I kind of started getting the idea for the, um, kind of one of the thesis that I've kind of written around or worked around for a while is that whenever we go through some sort of major, you know, or even a minor shift or transformation or change, um, there is some grief attendant to it. Yeah. You know, and a lot of times it's unacknowledged because what you're moving into is something wonderful and great or, mm-hmm. or something you've always wanted to do. But there is still just kind of that sense of, okay, you know what, I'm uh, moving into something new also means I'm leaving something else behind. Um, and so a lot of that post and, and a lot of, you know, what you're saying just, you know, kind of connects with that idea yeah. that there just is. There's just kind of a little bit of an, an ache to it sometimes. Yeah. In, in your new book, you talk about um, your book. There's a line there about it's about loss and how we cope with change. And mm-hmm. I think that's like that's a very fitting thing about like the spiritual journey. That's part of life. That's part of uh, who we're becoming. And I think it's great. And so before we get into the new book, which is titled Out of Sorts, which just came out a couple of days ago. Yes. We need to talk about something. 
Okay. I think every person you quote in that book has been on the podcast. I feel like every <laughs> author from, you know, McKnight to Brian Zahn to Roar to Ends to N.T. Wright, like everyone is seems to be in the book. Well, and, you're a big freaking deal, Luke. <laughs> well, I was just wondering, like, how come I'm not quoted in the book? That's what I was trying to get at. But since I'm, we don't have to talk about that, why I'm not quoted in the book. We can talk about something else. <laughs> I have, I've always had, like, questions about my authors and, and, and the people who've been on the podcast that I don't really know how to compare one to the other. But since you seem to know them so well and you quote them, maybe you can help me out. So if I have some questions, do you think you can answer them for me? I don't know if I can, but I sure can try. Okay, so you're friends with Nadia and Rachel Held Evans? Yes. Yeah. So, like, for example, I've always wondered, if there was going to be a cage fight to save Christianity, you had to pick one of them to, to fight to save Christianity. Are you going to go with Nadia or Rachel Held Evans? And before you answer Nadia, because you think that's the <laughs> obvious answer, remember, Rachel, she lives in, like, country, a small town, so she has country strength. So with that being said, who are you going to pick, Nadia or Rachel Held Evans? You know, this is a hard one, especially because they work as a dream team. I know, yeah. Right? They are, they are a dream team together. And they, I mean, the last conference that they put together, that Why Christian one, mm-hmm. um, was just phenomenal for that. And it was kind of about that whole idea of, you know, what's, what is, why do we still care about the church? church mm-hmm. i would have a hard time picking that one they both bring such different strengths i guess to the we're, table. If, if you don't pick someone then i guess christianity's sunk okay we'll go to the next question then um well what about the option of they could be a tag team ta- i don't think they, i think that i think they would be disqualified that's not how it works <laughs> in the ufc so I if Man, I don't, I, don't, I don't watch UFC, but I will say that I think that both of them could take us. Okay. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, if you had to say you're charismatic, Pentecostalish, whatever, uh, what is the right term? What, what are we I don't even know what the right term is. You're, I'm you're definitely it. Yeah. So if you had to guess who was better at speaking tongues, are you going to go with Brian Zahn or <laughs> Jonathan Martin? Who's, who's the better one, you think? You know, they are both very spirit-filled. Um, I would say if I had to pick someone, um, it might actually be Jonathan. He's and that's taller. because I he's know taller. he studied under Cheryl Bridges Johns, and mm. Dr. John Dr. Bridges Johns is an amazing woman of the spirit that I've have met few people who are so anointed as she is. And since he studied under her, I'm going to just to trust that that anointing transferred. All right. I guess you're not going to BZ's prayer school. Okay. we got another one. Who's going to get the better seat in heaven, N.T. Wright or Peter Enns? Hmm. Who's going to get the better seat in heaven? Well, what defines better? What's the best seat in See, heaven? See, it's a trick question. Are we it really sure question. Pete Enns is going to make it in? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Who is... I don't even know. I don't know if you're, you're allowed to. I mean, I, I don't think that the, the best seat in heaven might be the one that we don't necessarily expect. Um, was... The other thing, too, I noticed, actually, is that, do you know why? Maybe you can answer this question for me. In North America, all of N.T. Wright's books have his name as N.T. Wright. But when I was in the U.K., all of his books had his name as Tom Wright. Tom. And all the U.K. folks always call him Tom Wright. And that seems, like, very familiar to me. 
(laughs) So I have a hard time calling him Tom Wright, even though it's sitting right there on his Mm -mm. book as his author name. Do you know why there's a difference there? You've interviewed him. Uh, Yeah, I I refer to him as the bishop. And uh, (laughs) he he actually is the next guest in the podcast. And so I've been emailing with him and he signs everything as Tom, but I still don't feel like that's appropriate. I feel like that's a trick question from the universe. If I say Tom, someone's going to come shoot me. I know. It feels like you're using like a nickname for God. Like, yeah. Just, yeah. You just don't do that. You don't, you don't do that. Okay. Here's the final question. Who is more like the Yoda of Christianity, Richard Rohr or Brian McLaren? Mm, that is a good, good question. Um, you know, I would probably say Richard Rohr. That's I think a, that, uh, right I think answer. that Brian McLaren even studies on you know, a lot of Richard Rohr stuff. I mean, and Richard Rohr's, you know, for some people a little bit outside of the tradition because he's Catholic, but man, he's good. Oh, I love his stuff. He's definitely more the Yoda. If I could picture anybody sitting in a cave and 900 years old, dispensing wisdom would probably be Richard Rohr. Yep. Yep. I mean, McLaren could be the next one, but Rohr is definitely that one. Okay. I feel like now we have a baseline for the conversation. We know kind of where you stand (laughs) on ends and Rohr and NT Wright, or you might want to call him Tom Wright at the end of this conversation. Who knows? So let's talk about the new question next week. When you talk to him, you should ask him. What should I ask him? What we what we are supposed to call the poor man. I, okay. Yeah, I'll do he that. Might, he might tell us to call him Dr. Wright. <laughs> <laughs> I, Everybody says to call me Tom, but you two yahoos <laughs> need to call me Dr. Wright. <laughs> I, so I went to interview him, and I brought a buddy of mine. And he, my, my friend thinks he's more Anabaptist than he is. Like, we're in the same tradition, but he claims he's Anabaptist more than I am. I don't know why. But he uses okay. that... Real Anabaptist way to have a contest about those things. Isn't yeah, it? I know that's the point. But he called him Brother Tom. He said, "Hey, yeah. Brother Tom," and I was like, I, "I'm embarrassed of you right now." I said, don't don't call him that. Is he charismatic? Because that's a real charismatic thing. I say brother all the time. I call Jonathan Martin brother brother Jonathan all the time. Do you really? <laughs> yes, I totally do. Isn't it like Friar Tuck kind of thing? Like you call everyone brother? I don't know. It's a Pentecostal thing. So maybe if you, have, huh. if you have any Pentecostal background, it's brother this and sister that, sister Cheryl, hmm. sister Sarah. Well, this, yeah, we, we, we definitely, whenever I'm around old school Pentecostals like me or old school charismatics, all that language just flies right out. Well, I'm Church Absolutely. of Christ, and so we don't even really recognize you guys as Christians. So we, we don't call anyone in the Pentecostal movement brother. We're kind of, <laughs> you guys kind of scare us. But I'm That's kidding. We I, don't lo- mind being a little, I don't mind being a little scary now. <laughs> no, we love Pentecost. Chris Green. I don't know if you know who Chris Green is, but I do. I love Chris. Green. I love Chris Green. He's a great. He's the world's smartest Pentecostal. Or at least that's what he says. Um, no. So <laughs> let's let's talk about the book. So I start yes. reading it. It came in the mail whenever, and I read the first chapter. And you're talking about Ricoeur and his second naivete. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Rohr talks about the three boxes: Brueggemann's languages, uh, orientation, disorientation, reorientation, and. Yes. Let me tell you a real story. So I switched jobs, but if I was not going to switch jobs, I have a project in my Scrivener writing app that I'm developing right now built around the idea of a book for the three phases. Mm. And so I'm reading this going, this is, yes, this is what has been at the center of my mind for years. And you've written about this. And so I'm so excited, very excited. And so, and you tell a story that, was it Nadia who, you were driving with, and she gave you that language for the first time, and that's when it the record stuff about second naivete became real mm-hmm. to you? It was. You know, I had started actually on the book already and was doing some, some writing around 
um, you know, some of the themes that I wanted to explore about this idea of how we shift and change and how that's a really healthy part of our faith and why it's necessary uh, and that we don't need to be afraid of it. I think that was really my heart going into the book was to say, you know what, you don't need to be afraid of this. This isn't something you need to white knuckle your way through. Um, but, you know, when I was in, it was actually just after a conference and we were in the car, we had just met, I mean, you know, and, and I have such deep admiration for, you know, her work and her voice and she has just saved my life a time or two, I feel. And we were in the car and we were driving back to the airport. She had decided to uh, drop me off at the airport so we could have a bit more time to visit. And, um, we were just talking about, um, the fact that we had, we were, it was funny because we were actually at this conference. It was called, um, what was it? Uh, Christianity 21. I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so you had 21 minutes to basically say, what do you think the church needs to do moving forward in the 21st century? Mm-hmm. And I got up there and I had this huge revolutionary answer of saying, I think we need to really know and follow and love Jesus. That was, that was my answer, right? Because I'm just such a revolutionary. Tony Jones was like, that is brilliant. I never thought about that. I know. Nobody's ever heard this before, right? He's so excited. And then Nadia that. gets up there, and her whole thing is, you people need to go to church. Like, and so we were having a laugh on the way to the airport because we were like, isn't it kind of hilarious that the Pastrix and the Jesus feminist got up there and gave the most, like, yeah. old school answers, you know, to that question of what could we possibly do going into the 21st century. Yeah. And so then we, that got us started talking about how, um, you know, we had shifted in our faith and how we had changed and how we felt like we were born again all over again. And the more we talked about the Lord, the more, you know, we started to kind of get a little bit, you know, teary about it. And then we started laughing at ourselves because we were getting teary about, you know, church and Jesus and life and faith. And we were like, who would have ever, you know, people would just laugh. They would yeah. laugh at us, right? They could see the two of us here in this car on the highway, just, you know, crying into the gear shift about how much we love Jesus. And then she was the one who said, well, you know, it's actually a real thing. You know, it's, it's the record thing, the second naivete. And I was like, somehow the hackles on the back of my neck just stood up. And I said, you need to tell me more about that. And so she did. And I went home and just started, you know, researching it. And that led me into Fowler's work as well. Um, And so after reading through those studies and reading through those books, I was like, you know what? I feel like this is really um, giving me the language for what it is that the spirit and I were kind of already wrestling with. Yeah. And so for those who are unfamiliar with it, the basic idea is you have this first idea of faith, what, whichever metaphor you want to use. Um, and then you go into some wilderness point. You have to go through some phase in which you, you lose that. But then the third phase or the second naivete, as Ricor says, is you're going back into it with a different way to experience the exact same thing where you were before. And mm-hmm. so, so your book is like you're talking about the Bible, which obviously was a big deal to you before, and now it's kind of resurfaced in church as well. And so I love the way that you're kind of t- trying to say, let's look at these same basic things, but look at them through fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. And so you have, <clears throat> let's talk about the Bible first. So you seem to be a huge fan of Pete Enns. I do like Pete Enns. Yeah. I like Pete Enns quite a bit. And so you had a... He's given, I think he's given me language, again, for things that I, because I'm not an academic, right, Luke? Like I'm, you know, very much... Um, you know, everyday theologian who's just very self-taught, very sloppy at times. Um, and oftentimes I feel like I am, you know, wrestling with really big ideas. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the chapters in the book is actually about that, this idea of um, that I'm not scared off by theology and that I rely a lot on people who know a lot more than me, but yet I'm also learning to give credence to my experiences and my, yeah. you know, my encounters with the Spirit as well. Um, and so I really love when I encounter theologians um, and thinkers like Pete Enns because 
I feel like they, they give me language for what I always knew in my heart was true. Yeah. And that's what I felt like he did for me with the Bible. Yeah. I, I love Pete Enns. I think he's been on like six times or something like that. I, I'm a big fan of his work. And, and so I love the way that you've gone about that because there is like one school of thought that's very prevalent today that says, you know, I'm not, you know, a quote unquote classically educated person. And so that stuff doesn't matter. And so I'm just going to ignore it. But mm-hmm. yours, your attitude, you're well read. You've, you've engaged with a lot of these hard ideas and, and difficult tasks of trying to understand some of these more uh, scholarly debates. But you said, you know, I might not be classically educated, but I'm still going to be informed. And that mm-hmm. surfaces in your work saying that what that your voice is still legitimate because you've done the work to have the ability to be in the conversation. And you haven't just said, well, I don't need to worry about what those people are talking about. And I love the way that you sim- synthesize that for people who are in the similar stage of life as you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's one of those things that I felt like, um, you know, I'm I, in my heart of hearts, I feel like I'm a writer. And, and a big part of why I write is because I'm, I'm always trying to write through what I think and believe and even hope about God. Um, this is the, the great love story of my life. And so, you know, my husband did go to seminary. My husband was a pastor and he went through and, and got his master's in seminary. And I saw, um, and learned a lot. I was exposed to a lot just by osmosis. Yeah. And so that's maybe how I, I, you know, was introduced to some of these names that maybe the average lay person would not, you know, be geeking out with Jacques Louis, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but on the same time, I've come to really, even though I've, I've grappled with whether or not to, to go to seminary at some point in my life and to kind of get those letters behind my name because I feel like maybe it would give me more legitimacy um, to be writing about the topics that I write about. But I feel like there's something really um, powerful about staying a little bit outside the academy. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that there's something about um, that I still really wrestle with. If I, I feel like if I were to kind of cross over over there that maybe I would lose some of that really deep connection to the everyday theologians, right? The, yeah. the ones of us who are, you know, we're, we're keen on it. We want to learn from it. I want to receive from it. Um, you know, but I kind of like, I like being a little bit outside the gates. Yeah. And I think there's definitely a benefit to that. One of the, the problems from my experience, you know, going to grad school uh, for a couple of years is that like you're in there and you have this isolated community. So you talk to each other, you read the same books and you, exactly. you forget what, normal people actually experience and you forget the normal discourse of people. And so you can't talk to normal people. And so therefore whatever you've gained, it's for not because you can't connect to people. And so, yeah, yeah, obviously there's definitely benefits to that. And so ends is a guy who his work has been helpful for you as it is for many of us. And so what I hear in your work is what ends talks about as a Christocentric reading of the text. Right. And so reading that through the lens of Jesus. So how has that been in, how has that influenced your work or, or your understanding of, of text? Well, you know, this was, the, I think the reason why it mattered so much to me is because um, a, a big part of my own story was, was actually wanting to walk away from church altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, of just not feeling like I fit there, um, not feeling like I fit there for, for a, a million different reasons. Um, and so whenever people would ask me, they'd be like, well, why aren't you going to church? I would be like, oh. You know, any one of these things, it wouldn't be enough. But when you take this big bouquet of reasons, you know, it, it all kind of adds up. But I always was so fascinated with Jesus. Um, right from the time I was, uh, you know, a, a small child and growing up in the kind of churches that I grew up in, we were a very Jesus-centric um, community. Um, you know, my parents were first-generation Christians. We weren't, denom- we weren't within a denomination. We were very isolated, um, and so for us, Jesus was kind of, 
you know, just the point. It was yeah. it was the center of everything for us. You know, some churches really emphasize, um, you know, like doctrine or scripture memorization or, you know, what else, right? There's certain things that every church kind of emphasizes. And for us, it was really all about Jesus. What did that look like, just focusing on Jesus for you guys? Um, well, you know, from a teaching perspective, like a lot of teaching about Jesus. Um, but there was even a really strong um, sense of intimacy, with the Lord, there was an expectation of intimacy, I suppose, is probably what I should say, where instead of saying things like, you know, what do you think the, you know, uh, scripture tells you you should do about that, we would, we would phrase it as saying, well, what do you think that Jesus wants hmm. in this situation? And so scripture may very well be a part of that answer and oftentimes was, was the answer because, um, you know, we were very oftentimes very literal in, in those early days with how we read scripture. And so, you know, in our language, in our conversations, in what the point of the whole thing was, it really was in the beginning, Jesus. And then the more I moved into church culture, the more I felt like I kind of lost Jesus in there. Um, you know, like Jesus became just another character in the Bible. Um, and, and those stories were just, um, you know, on the same level playing field as, you know, Moses or uh, David or Samuel or Paul. And, you know, it was just like all of a sudden it's all flat. things were... Yeah there yeah there was this flatness there to it so when i walked away from my my christianity as i understood it and from going to church um i still remained really fascinated with jesus and so that was what ended up reorienting me that was what caught me back again that's mm -hmm. what made me want to want to re-enter kind of that second nativity that 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 shift for me was all of a sudden realizing that i didn't know jesus and i wanted to know jesus and if i wanted to follow him i had to figure out what that looked like mm -hmm. And the more I did that, the more I realized that I didn't know Jesus at all. Hmm. And I kind of had this Sunday school version in my head, and, and it was a lot more wild and, you know, wonderful and, you know, difficult to understand than I ever could have imagined. Yeah. And so when that happened, um, that helped me re-engage with the Bible. And so when people like, you know, Pete Enns um, and a few other people I know um, that also talk about a more Christ-like God, like um, Brad Jersak yeah. has, has talked about that, and Brian Zond, and a lot of theologians and, and people who are, you know, particularly within my tradition as charismatics, were talking about, you know, a Christocentric reading of Scripture. The light went on for me because I knew he was already, Jesus was already the center of everything for me here, and so now I could have that same centering within how I encountered Scripture. And yeah. so it just was a natural progression. Yeah. That's good. And Brad Jurisic's great. I actually just emailed him two days ago because I'm ripping some of his stuff off in a sermon I'm doing next week. So, okay, good. Uh, <laughs> and I'm giving him credit now, so I don't have to do it in my sermon. But I'm kidding. But so you've moved from like Jesus-centered, but it was as you understood it, or as you said, like you didn't really understand Jesus. Now that you have this Christocentric reading of text, you feel like you have a deeper understanding. What do you think some of the differences are? If it's still, it sounds like probably to outsiders, like it's very much the same thing. What would you say is different now than before? Um, you know, I think that it's helped me replace the Bible into its proper, you know, place in my life, as opposed to having it as, you know, some fourth member of the Trinity, or even um, as the third member, just completely displacing the Spirit, right, mm. and displacing the Holy Spirit entirely out of the Trinity because it's just, you know, Father and Son and, and Scripture. I'm, um, I'm Church of Christ. I'm completely good with that. <laughs> Wait, you're saying we can't do that? No, no, no. Okay. I know it's a sad story. It'd be it'd be a lot more a lot a lot, a lot easier to parse, wouldn't it? it? Bible's so easy to understand. I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that that that's you know definitely a a, a part of it for sure. 
um, you know, is, is re reconnecting with the spirit, reconnecting with what that means when I read scripture, um, you know, but particularly in, in it helped me understand that Jesus was um, was God. And it sounds so silly, doesn't it, when you say it so, so simply. But all of a sudden, I began to realize that it was God incarnate among us, that it was God with us, and that there was this um, theme of resurrection and redemption and renewal in the life of Jesus. And all of a sudden, I began to realize that this meant that there were so many ways where we had misunderstood and mischaracterized God. Yeah. And oftentimes, the Bible carries those stories. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and Jesus would say things like that. He would say, you know, you have heard it said, you know, that an eye for an eye, um, you know, when, when something goes, goes wrong with an enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, showing what God's real heart and intention was and kind of moving us further on this sort of, um, you know, William J. Webb calls it like the arc of redemption, the, you know, the redemption narrative. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the things I, I love about what Jersak and Brian Zahn and, and obviously PNNs are doing is that they're trying to have this understanding that like the best way to understand who God is is Jesus. Like that's, Absolutely. it seems like it's a very elementary move, but it's so foundational because not many of us are doing that. We think well, yeah. Old Testament God or New Testament. No, no, no. It's Jesus. That is God. The, everything else is secondary. That's the centerpiece of it. And so as you're saying in the book, it, it helps you re-understand other things like, for example, the wrath of God. And so in the mm-hmm. book, you have this line about the wrath of God, and you say God's love meant to heal us, not a fire that rages against us. Mm-hmm. And so that understanding of who Jesus is, the centerpiece of, of who God is, helps you interpret things like the wrath of God. Is that what you're trying to say? Absolutely. You know, I think that even um, you know, the wrath of God, the anger of God, the fear of God, all those things that have oftentimes been weaponized against us um, are actually things meant to heal us and restore us. Um, and our way of understanding that has, um, it can oftentimes be damaging, you know, it can not only be damaging in our relationship and understanding with God, but it can be really damaging in how we interact and treat each other Mm -hmm. because all of a sudden you see each other as, you know, a focus of God's, you know, devastating wrath, as opposed to seeing the tenderness that God has towards us and that the wrath is directed at the thing that is killing us. Um, you know, the separation that their sovereignty completely changed how I viewed sovereignty and moved me out of this, you know, blueprint version of, you know, God planned and made, you know, ordained people for this and that. And all of a sudden it changed how I viewed sovereignty. Now I see sovereignty as this promise that all things are going to be restored and, and, and um, reconciled to God, that it's something good that chases us and that all these things will work. Yeah. New heavens, new earth. That's good news. That's yeah, good news. it is. It's a gospel, right? And that's just it. If it's not good news and it doesn't sound like good news right off the bat, then what are we preaching? Yeah. Okay, so I feel like now that I don't really need to write that book that I wanted to write because I feel like I was saying all the stuff <laughs> I wanted to say. Uh, so hopefully people... None will... of us ever write anything new. We're all just riffing on the same things on each other's <laughs> So in case two years from now a book comes out that sounds a whole lot like this with my name on it, just remember what you said. Sarah said to buy it. And thank you. So... <laughs> As you had this different understanding of Jesus, it changed the way you understood what Jesus was all about. And you say in the book that the discovery of the kingdom of God reoriented your faith and actually drew you back to church, which is a kind of a crazy thing to think of the kingdom of God as what drew you back to church because most time people don't even talk about the kingdom of God as being that important. So how was that something that drew you back to church? You know, it's funny because there's almost two schools of thought that, that seem like they're, they're almost um, in opposition to one another when it comes to that topic. There's people who are kingdom-minded, and those are oftentimes people who think that things like going to a local church and being really involved in, you know, intentional community is just, you know, small-minded. 
yeah. right? That there's, you know, the big, huge kingdom of God out there, right? Um, and so, you know, we're part of that instead of, you know, also, you know, part of this thing. And then there's the church people who, you know, can kind of get caught up in, in just the small, um, you know, us for no more, these four walls, and let's keep ourselves busy all the time here within, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that the shift for me was realizing that um, when I couldn't understand and couldn't really be, maybe connect with church and felt that it was the kingdom of the, the theology around the kingdom of God um, and the vastness and the bigness of it and the momentum of it that helped me begin to realize that all those people in the kingdom of God, all of us who were, um, you know, setting up outposts for God's way of life and God's dream for humanity, those were all the church. That's the church. Yeah. <laughs> That's those people. It's not, you know, teams against each other, right? And so then I began to realize that when I was in these seasons of um, questioning and doubt and, and uncertainty and renewal and change and shifting, that the people who were helping me hang on to Jesus and the people who were helping me um, grow and shift, they were the people of God. Hmm. And the kingdom of God was part of this and that we, we were all a part of it. And then all of a sudden that reconnected me to local, small, intentional church. And now I'm, hmm. you know, it's kind of funny how you go almost full circle. And, and like uh, we, say, we said earlier, you know, you return to the place where you started, but you see it with entirely new eyes and for an entirely new reason, an entirely new purpose. And you bring kind of this vastness of the, the big metaphor with you. And then you are showing up on Sunday mornings in the gym with all your kids and saying, this is worth my time. This is worth it. Yeah. Your line in the book, something about um, perhaps we can never really leave our mother church. Mm-hmm. And so you, you might have a phase when you go, but you came back and that's where you are again. I think that's really, I think that's beautiful. And so the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, as you say, I mean, Luke's gospel says that, but for some reason, I like Matthew's language. Anyway, that was a complete nerd tangent right there. Uh, So the kingdom of God was a big part of getting you back there. I'm assuming before that, your understanding was more the sin management message. That's what Jesus came to do, like, you know, get rid of the debt. And so you can go to heaven and be good with God. Totally. And so that, and so you, you morph from that being the centerpiece to kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. So no, it absolutely is. I think it's it's life changing when you begin to realize that the point of it isn't to escape. Mm-hmm. You know, the point of it isn't um, to be snatched away on some gospel ship and and just disappear. And that somehow, um, again, going back to some of our conversations from sovereignty and God's wrath, and you know what what it is, all of a sudden you begin to see the world as as gods yeah. and as good. And as people, as made in the image of God, and you begin to just have almost your heartbreak for all the ways that we have misunderstood and mischaracterized the ferocious love of God towards us and towards this earth. And so the kingdom of heaven and this idea of um, that this is it, that this is good and God created it and that this is what's going to be reconciled and restored. And this, you know, the idea of being truly human um, to me was just life changing because then it's God with us. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So as you're talking about church, church is a big deal. You're going back to church. You were gone for, I think, six years or so. And then now you're every Sunday, just about every Sunday in the gym with the chairs, with the kids saying this is important. Great. And so you have a line in there, which might be kind of uh, seem contradictory to some people, but I don't think that's what you're trying to say at all. And I'd love to hear you unpack a little bit more. But you say one of the important things for us to do as a community is to shift away from a church-centered view of ourselves and towards a God-centered view of us all. What does that mm-hmm. look like, moving from a church center to a God-centered view? Well, I think that that's maybe where the church lost me 
perhaps was that it began to seem um, just self self serving and self sustaining. Like the church was the point, you know, keeping church people busy was the point. Uh, going to church was the point. Um, you know, if you weren't there every Sunday, um, if you dared to find community outside of something that was an approved five hundred one three C nonprofit mm-hmm. organization with tax status, do you guys then even somehow have you were forsaking? You know, the assembling of the the saints, right? Yeah, yeah. First and of, so, let me interrupt. There's an important question. Do you guys even have 501c3s in Canada? Do you guys we have don't. taxes? We do have a, a, occasional taxes. That's interesting. Okay. So, but you're moving beyond this idea that it has to be just that to see it all. What right. You- and I think that that's part of, um, you know, kind of what, what I was getting at is this idea that the church actually has a purpose, right? Yeah. And, and that was where a lot of my study um, probably you know, maybe 10 years ago and into a, you know, back when missional theology was like brand new to a lot of us and it was moving out of the halls of academia and into the church Mm -hmm. uh, and into, you know, lay people and lay language. Um, You know, so a lot of that conversation helped shift me and realize, you know what, we actually have a purpose here and it's not just to stay busy until Jesus comes back. Like we have a reason to gather that we are a community gathered in the name of Jesus and that, you know, yes, we get a lot of life from one another and we pray for one another and we are equipped. But the point is, is that we are equipped to go mm-hmm. and we are equipped to go into our lives and every corner of our society and that whatever, wherever corner you find yourself, um, that's a place where you can set up an outpost for the kingdom of God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm doing a mailbag podcast where uh, listeners send in questions. And so there's a question that fits in exactly with your book that I'll let you answer and then I'll answer on the mailbag in a couple of weeks. But there's a question about someone who's at a church now and they're probably a second naivete person. They're at that stage mm-hmm. in their development and they're at a church in which it's not there and they're not willing to kind of ask those questions. And so as you've gone back to church and you have a different view of maybe church and some people around you in the Bible and Jesus, um, how, how do you wrestle with that tension of where you are and maybe where the church is? You know, I think that's part of the reason actually why I wrote the book is I feel like this is a season of our lives that we don't really acknowledge in church. Uh, we don't shepherd people well in this season of life. Um, mainly because one of the things that Fowler said in his study, and I, I talked about this a bit in the book, but that I found so provocative it talks about these six stages of our spiritual growth and you kind of have, you know, he, he corresponds them more with ages, right? Yeah. Like your ages. And so, but he talks about this childhood one around, right around stage two or stage three, where it's, you know, it's called mythic literal, where you know, everything's cause and effect. It's black and white. If I do this, then I get that. Um, and anything that is, that threatens that certainty and that um, authority from the people who have you have given authority over you or you know were, were put in authority over you um that's a threat and so what he provocatively says is that almost all of our faith communities are set up to function best at that stage yeah yeah and so anyone who dares to progress to stage four let alone stage five or six oftentimes find themselves at odds or like they have at odds with their faith community because they are um, they're, they're coloring outside the lines. They are, they are not, you know, behaving the way that they are supposed to behave. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for me, I, I found that when I, when I was struggling in that place, when I was in that critical distance season or wilderness or whatever you want to call it, the stage four angst and, and struggle, um, I didn't feel like I had a place in church. Uh, because everything I heard and everything I saw just didn't seem to to connect, and I um, and to be honest, I felt like I was really hard on people. I was yeah. it was very cynical. 
um, I was uh, critical. I, I felt like I wasn't very good um, about differentiating between being a critical thinker and having a really critical heart. Hmm. And that is something that I feel I have had to grow into uh, because not only, I think that there is a way, I think you can be a very critical thinker and yet not give yourself over to having a critical heart. Yeah. And so, you know, I did end up struggling with church. I would kind of like, you know, skate around and show up every now and again and then just kind of be like, oh, I can't really do this. And I guess what I learned in that season um, is that that was okay. Hmm. And I know that that really, that really bothers some people, right? They want you to, to stay put. They want you to persevere. And I think that there's a place for that. And I think that there's a re- there's, you'll be... You'll, you'll find what you need, whether you stay or whether you go, but that you never really escape from that story. You are always sort of haunted by it. And so even if you go for a bit of a walk in the wilderness, even if you end up leaving, you know, a community where you really belonged for a long time and maybe you return to it eventually, or maybe you leave and go into an entirely different tradition, which a lot of people do, right? They depart mm-hmm. and, you know, move into new traditions and new expressions of, of the spirit. And, and I think that that's okay because i feel like those false tribal boundaries don't don't mean quite as much to me as they hmm. used to. So your your bigger understanding of a God-centered world or whatever, instead of a church-centered, allows you to say, this is still kingdom, even if you're at a different flavor next door? Absolutely. You know what? And, and I know that that's maybe not a very popular thing to say, but I guess I feel like we're all on the same team. Yeah. Right? Huh. And I feel like I need, I have needed all those expressions. You know, when I went out in the wilderness and I left my own tradition and I left... Um, you know, the, the version or brand of Christianity that I had being, you know, given and what I had worked within for so long. Um, you know, that's when I discovered Anglicanism. That's when I discovered Anabaptist theology. That's when I discovered liberation theology. That's when I discovered a lot of different ways of encountering God that I never would have if I had stayed right where I was. Mm-hmm. And then I gathered all those things up with me and I took them home. Hmm. See, I, I don't know if everyone makes that same move back home because if everyone who's you know if we're going to use fowler's you know stages of of faith um if if someone goes to a four or a five and then they never return back to everyone who's stuck in a two then those people don't have the examples of how someone can progress and still be connected mm-hmm. to community and so it's great that you're able to return but some people never come back and so those communities don't have the people who need to be pulling them forward still connected. Exactly. So how do you... And I think that that's one of the things that you find, no matter where you find yourself, all of a sudden you realize that we're out there. That those of us who have... And, and that's you know part of what my original uh, point was, is that we don't talk about it enough. You know, we don't mm-hmm. talk about the fact that, that those of us who have followed Jesus for a time, oftentimes are progressing and are changing, um, that we, we hit these points in our life where all of a sudden everything we thought we knew for sure is being dismantled. Um, and I look back now on the communities where I embarked from, and I can see them. Mm-hmm. I can see them. I can see there were, there were a few pastors, there were a few leaders that really did try to reach out to me um, and try to help me in that process. Um, I wasn't really able to receive from it. You know, there was too much baggage, there was too much whatever. But now at this stage, you know, 10 or 15 years on the other side of it, uh, I look back on those people and I've reconnected with them. And I've, in some cases, I've repented, you know, and had Mm. to go to them and say, you know what, I didn't handle that well. I didn't do, I didn't do this struggle thing very well. And I burned some bridges and I said things I shouldn't have said, or I didn't understand, Um, you know, and I was kind of in that teenager, adolescent kicking against thing. 
And it isn't until later on in your life that you come back to your parents or whomever it is and say, okay, now I get it. I yeah. get it a bit more. Right? Yeah, definitely. The, the problem though is when you're the teenager, you think your parents are complete idiots and you've got the Absolutely. whole world figured out. And I think some might fairly critique you know, some of this work, and, and I say this as someone who's uh, you know, been a student of uh, the different stages, is that there's a very, um, uh, very real bit of arrogance in this the idea like i've progressed to this phase you guys are back here still how do you how do you respond to that or how do you think people should guard against um becoming arrogant while still wanting to progress i think the arrogance is really typified is really a symptom or a tell for the fact that you're not done oh wow Uh, that's good i feel like it is a um a symptom or an example for saying you're not out of the critical distance, you're not out of the wilderness, you are still very much in stage four. Because one of the the hallmarks, I feel, of um, being someone who kind of returns to that second naivete or to, you know, stage five or even six is that universality and a a spirit of humility and uh, and grace. And even what the grace um, that you have, not only for your your former self, for the people who were on that journey with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you are still encountering it from a stage of, I'm smarter than you, I know better, you bunch of you know bourgeoisie people who'd never think, <laughs> then obviously you aren't getting it either. And the spirit is not finished with you in this regard. Yeah. So if, you're, if there's someone listening right now who's left stage one and they're kind of fundamentalists, understanding scripture is kind of eroded and they're you know, all these precepts they had about God have kind of crumbled and they don't really know what to do. And they want to hear like, what, how do I keep going without just giving up altogether? What's your suggestion for them besides to, to buy your book? <laughs> well, if you, if you insist, <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I think, um, really revolutionized my way of engaging with spiritual growth was, was having children. Um, you know, one of the, a big part of my own story and then the stage of life that I'm in, I have, you know, four small children, um, but I have, uh, been pregnant eight times. And so I have lost four, uh, babies before birth. And so for me, the metaphors of, you know, pregnancy and birth and pain and loss and, and new life are really rich, uh, in, in many ways. But one of the things I remember learning when I was getting ready to give birth, um, without going into obviously too much details for most of your poor seminary folks, uh, yeah, all these poor, all these poor people, um, yeah, trust Sarah, trust Sarah to always talk about having babies. But anyway, uh, one of the things that, that I remember reading and learning about, cause one of the things that I had uh, wanted to do was, was pursue, you know, natural childbirth or, or pain or without pain medications. And so if everything was well, of course. And so one of the things that I learned about was this thing that Dr. William Sears called the fear, tension, pain cycle. And the idea was, is that when you are afraid, your body tenses up and then the pain is so much worse. And it kind of turns into this circle that you keep going around where then the pain gets worse. And so you get more afraid and that causes your body to get more tense and then you get worse pain. And so it just kind of keeps spiraling in in, in this intensity to the point where it becomes you are fighting against very pain that is meant to free you the very pain that is meant to help you give birth to this child and of course being someone who over spiritualizes and overthinks everything you know? no no yeah my spidey senses all tingled and i was like that makes sense to me that resonates with me because it feels like um the very things that are meant to free me 
I often fight against. And it's because there's pain there. Yeah. But that pain is serving a purpose. And really the only way to be able to give birth and the only way to give birth, you know, in terms of, you know, an actual physical baby or in terms of, you know, what the spirit is trying to give birth to, to you in, in your life uh, is to lean into the pain, to surrender yourself into it, to press into the very thing that your body is trying to convince you to be afraid of. Um, and to be tense towards and instead embrace it and let it be part of you. And you ride that pain uh, in a place of release until it's over. And I discovered that that was true as I gave birth. Um, it was absolutely true. And I had discovered that that is true in these stages of my life. So if you're someone who is kind of moving out of that, you know, initial first nativity and you are feeling afraid, oftentimes, because all of a sudden you're, the ground beneath your feet has shifted and the sky looks very different to you and you feel like you are in this new place that you didn't maybe even want to be in because oftentimes what shifts us into that um, is, is grief or loss or change in circumstance or something that um, the answers that you had just crumble in your hands like dust. And so when you are experiencing that, um, the instinct is to fight against the pain and to fight against the questions and pretend you don't have them and shove them in a box and stick your fingers in your ears and I'm fine, we're fine, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And so my encouragement to people if they're feeling that is actually completely counter to probably what their intuition is and that is to lean into it. Yeah. Okay. To chase those questions down. To lean into the pain. I'm going to be real honest, Sarah. I have ripped off your stuff about leaning into pain multiple times in sermons. And it's gotten <laughs> to the point now where it's like, Sarah Bessie once said, Sarah Be- I had a friend who once said, and then now it's just I said, because uh, I've used it <laughs> so much because that's so brilliant. Like, it's exactly right. You've got to lean into the discomfort because that's where the healing comes from. And I, I don't use the, the giving birth to a child metaphor as much for obvious reasons since I've never actually done that. But... It's so true. Like you lean into the pain. I was talking to a a doctor at the church I'm a part of now, and he was talking about how our tendency is when you have inflammation to have uh, anti-inflammatories. So you have get something to get the inflammation down. But his take with his the type of uh, medicine he practices is to say, wait a minute, your body is saying you need to have inflammation here for a reason. And maybe we should listen to that. And instead yes. of always just trying to block it. So, uh, Sarah, I your love... Your pain has a message for you, right? Yeah. There's a message in your pain. There always is. Yeah, that's so good. That, uh, that alone is worth the price of this book. And I think people should buy it. So the book is titled Out of Sorts, Sarah Bessie, uh, Our Friend, another great book. And thank you for the time to come talk to me. Well, thank you so much, Lou. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.